go out into the roads and the lanes, compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth, meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. So we hear in the third section of the Apostles' Creed, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. What in the world is the church? I wonder sometimes. Last week we were downstairs in Memorial Hall, forced to worship somewhere else because of the work we were having done here in the sanctuary. We were all crammed together in one place, embodying that Pentecostal reality of Acts chapter 2. They were all together in one place. When the Holy Spirit falls upon them like tongues of fire, they are given abilities to speak in different languages. I love the story of Pentecost, but I'll be the first to admit that sometimes reading the story of Pentecost, it can leave me feeling a bit down afterwards. Right after the Spirit shows up on these drowsy disciples, awe comes over everyone. Many wonders and signs are being done. They share everything together. They sell their possessions. They give away their goods. They make sure that no one is needy. Day by day, they spend time together. They break bread. They have the goodwill of all the people. Awe, generosity, gladness, not to mention 3,000 baptisms before the end of the first light service on a Sunday morning. I mean, is that what the church feels like today? Does it feel like Pentecost? The church where we talk about pledge cards and annual budgets and sanctuary renovations. But I mean, that's okay. You can't have Pentecost every Sunday, right? Except if you've ever read through the Acts of the Apostles, it seems like Pentecost just happens over and over again. The Spirit just keeps showing up on all these strange people. Lights the flame of faith. The gospel spreads everywhere. Lest we forget, the word gospel, euangelio, it literally means good news. The church, whatever it may be, it does not grow because the disciples guilt people into it or frighten people into it. They live such radical lives and witness to the one who makes all things new that other people see it and they want to know more. Those people want something more because the gospel is astonishing. It is too good to be true. It is everything for nothing. It also happens to be the only really good news around. It's so good, in fact, that it can turn sinners into saints. It can turn saints into the church. Perhaps that's why the the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, are tied to one another in the creed that we share. You can't have one of them without the other. And yet, as I said during the children's message, I think we have this lingering presumption that the saints are the super-duper holy roller people. The title that's reserved for the elite Christians who somehow put the rest of us Christians to shame. The Ronnie St. Clairs and then the rest of us. I'm not so sure. I mean, that might be how we understand who the saints are and what they look like. But certainly not how the strange new world of the Bible understands them. Paul begins two of his letters to churches the same way. He addresses the whole church as the saints who are in Christ Jesus. 
Again, it's all saints, not some of the saints. Paul seems to think that being a Christian and a saint are one in the same. That following Jesus gets you the title, whether you deserve it or not. In fact, maybe, perhaps not deserving the title is part of the whole operation. We are only who God tells us we are. Holy, saintly. These are some of those words that we throw around all the time without knowing what we're talking about when we use them. They're words we like to say and we don't know what we're doing them. We're doing to those words when we use them and thankfully that's exactly what Jesus forgives us from, from the cross. Lord, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. I mean, I think there's a strange and wonderful and beautiful value in looking out at the beloved community we call church and seeing the ragtag reality behind it. Or conversely, there's something downright wonderful about seeing a bunch of sinners and observing the communion of the saints within them. You know, we actually have a word for this. We have a word for everything in the church. That great church vault of the lexicon of God. Pull them out on Sunday morning. We've got a great word for this. Koinonia. Have you ever heard that word before? Koinonia. It's a Greek word. Very important word. It's where we get the word for communion. But like any word, it can be translated many ways. Koinonia in scripture can be translated the meal that we're going to share later in the service. Koinonia is also a word to describe the fellowship that the church shares with each other. It's also used to describe the relationship of the Trinity. Father, Son, Spirit. They have a a koinonia, a communion together. Koinonia is relationship. It's about being together. And how does koinonia come into existence? What does it look like? Well, wonder of wonders, it looks like a dinner party. How odd of God to have such an important word look like a dinner party. The koinonia of God, it's supposed to enable us to realize that we've been invited or dragged into a party of outrageous proportions. And it should make us want to shout at the top of our lungs about this party. We are a koinonia knit together by Jesus who loves dinner parties and dances. Which is why it's such a great challenge to be the church today. In trying to be all things to all people, we've done whatever it takes to appear respectable and acceptable by the rest of the world. But the real mark of the church is whether it's sufficiently unacceptable and disrespectable to the world. If we appear strange and weird and countercultural, then we're probably the church. Grace is very bizarre to the eyes of the world. It's an offer of pardon for those who don't earn it. It's mercy to those who don't desert. It lets in all the riffraff. And not only that, grace goes out into the streets of life and grabs the riffraff and drags them into the party. I didn't come up with this, by the way. Wish I did. It's good. It comes from Jesus. He's at a dinner party. The honored guest, let that be a reminder to you. Don't invite Jesus to your dinner party. He's liable to ruin everything for you. He's at the dinner party and he has just spent the last 15 minutes ripping to shred all the other guests because they've been clamoring to get the high place. They want to sit at the best place at the table. And he says, that's not how it works in the kingdom. The first will be last. The last will be first. Seat yourself at the low end of the table. And then he starts to tell this great party parable. Someone wanted to have a party. Send out all the invitations. But when the time of the party arrives, they have their excuses. I've got my new house to take care of. I've got some oxen I want to check out. I just got married. But the host says, no, the party must go on. Tells one of his party planners to go into the streets. 
Bring in the last, the least, the lost, the little. He does. There's still room. Party planner goes out, starts dragging in people off the street until the house is filled. I love this parable. It's so Jesus-y too. Like, who tells a story of a dinner party at a dinner party? That's got to be the most Jesus thing of all. And notice all the excuses that the, the people make, they're good excuses. In any other celebration or gathering, a reasonable host would understand, maybe even reschedule the party, but no, this is no ordinary party. This party is the church. This party is salvation. This party is koinonia. That's why we're so obsessed with living according to God's future in the present. Everything we do now is a foretaste of what is to come. And according to Jesus' story, this party parable, the great divine host's primary concern is that the party is crowded. Not filled with all the right people, with the right jobs, and the right social standing, with the right amount of money in their Roth IRAs. The host just wants people. The host just wants to have fun. And fun is had. Can you imagine all these people who've been dragged in this part? They're having the time of their lives. Free food, free drinks, a wide open dance floor, all on a day that they woke up expecting nothing, if not worse. There's no way they could have imagined themselves at this party called Koinonia, that by way of invitation or conscription, they have now exceeded the status of the original invitees. These people are not the people normally invited to parties but they find themselves at the most important party of all time. It's a party of grace, a parable of grace. And grace only works for those who don't deserve it, which, by the way, includes all of us. Now, on the surface, it might seem like a disaster of a party if you've ever held a party, but we're Methodists. We don't have parties. <laughs> but if you know someone who's ever had a party before... This might sound like a disaster. All of the original hoped for guests, they haven't even bothered to show up. The riffraff have taken their place. The non-party people have become the party people. But that's the whole point. This party is now filled with the saints of God. Saints are simply those Jesus invites and drags to the party called koinonia. And again, not to put too fine a point on it, koinonia, the koinonia, the communion of the gospel is radically different than everything else the world offers. Jesus hands out the resurrection even to those who nail him on the cross. Jesus proclaims unlimited forgiveness rather than holding on to the divine ledger book. Jesus comes to us in the brokenness of our bodies, in the failures of our families, in the middle of all of our mistakes. That's why we say Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, and that proves God's love toward us. Jesus compels us to the party of koinonia for no other reason than the fact that Jesus wants to have a good time. Jesus wants to have fun. Fred Craddock was a longtime teacher of preachers. This wonderful preacher who turned into a teacher of preachers. And he, many, many years ago, was invited to speak at a preaching conference in northern Canada. He arrived the night before the conference. And unexpectedly, a blizzard came through that area and shut everything down. Shut down all the streets, all the public transportation. They canceled the conference. And so Fred Craddock is in a strange place. It's very cold. And he wakes up, and there's no food at the hotel. 
He hears word that there might be some food around the corner, around the block. It's so cold, he hasn't packed properly. He decides the only way to stay warm is to take toilet paper and fill it inside of his jacket and put it under his hat. He starts walking through these streets in northern Canada, and he finds an old, battered, and almost broken down bus depot. And inside the bus depot is a cafe. And so he opens the door to the cafe with toilet paper coming out from underneath his hat, And it's crowded, I mean filled to the brim with people just like him, people who are looking for warm food in the middle of a blizzard. Socratic says that he walks in, he finds this last stool over by the counter, and he sits down, and a man with a greasy apron comes out and says, what do you want? And Craddock says, I'd like to see the menu, please. And he says, we don't got a menu, we got soup. You want soup? And Craddock says, well, sir, what kind of soup do you have? He says, did you hear me? We've got soup. You want it or not? And he said, soup sounds delicious. And sure enough, the man brings him some soup. And Craddock said it's the worst thing he's ever tasted in his life. He said he almost spit it out onto the counter. It was so disgusting and so bad. But it was warm, and his hands were cold, so he kept it. A little while later, a woman walks into the cafe in this bus depot, and she's clearly not dressed for the weather outside. She's frigid. She finds a spot at the counter right next to Craddock, The greasy apron comes forward and says, what do you want? And she says, I'll have a water, please. He says, are you going to order anything? And she says, the water's fine. He says, this is a place for paying customers. You cannot stay here. I've got other people I need to give things to. You clearly don't have money. I'm going to kick you out. They go back and forth for a few minutes. Voices start to raise. The last thing that the greasy apron says is, what do you think this is, church or something? And so the woman stands up to leave. And as if it was all rehearsed, every patron in the cafe stands up and they all start to walk out. It's as if she can't stay, then none of us are going to stay either. And the greasy apron witnesses this mass exodus and he says, fine, fine, I'm sorry, she can stay. And everybody sits back down and they go to their terrible soup. And Craddock says that he noticed something strange happened. Before this, while he was holding that warm, terrible soup, it was silent inside this packed bus depot. No one was speaking. But after the moment with the woman, people started to talk to one another. They started to laugh. Some in a corner booth even started to sing. And so Craddock said, I decided to try my soup again. I don't know what was in it, he said. But it tasted different now. You know what he said it tasted like? Bread and wine. He said it tasted like koinonia. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, and the communion of the saints. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.